Hi, everyone. This is Bruna and Jose. We're just getting started. Um, it's 3.03. I think we're going to get started at 3.05 to give folks a chance to come in, but welcome. We're so excited to be here with you. Um, maybe let us know in the chat box where you're calling in from. I'm calling in from Jersey City, New Jersey. Jose's in Washington, D.C. Would love to hear where folks are, where folks are calling from. All right, we got a Chicago. LA, very cool. Beaverton, Oregon. I've never heard of Beaverton. That's really cool. Denver, Seattle, NYC. Jose, we got a Minneapolis. I saw that. Jose grew up in Minneapolis, folks. That's why he's really excited. Anyone from Florida? So where I grew up. You're, it looks like you're gonna have to hold it down, Bruno. I know, I'll have to present. I don't know, I don't really wanna represent that whole state. <laughs> For folks who are still joining us, we're gonna get started in about another minute, just giving folks time to jump on in. I'm really excited to be here. For folks who are jumping in, we're putting what state we're calling in from in the chat box so we can see where folks are calling in from. Looks like we have a lot of uh, people calling in from Colorado. Yeah, I feel like that's the one that is the most so far. Yeah. All right, Jose, you want to get us started? 305? Yeah, let's go for it. I'm excited. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Um, my name is Jose. Um, I am the National Communications Manager for United We Dream. Um, and you have joined our session, uh, Home is Here, How DACA Recipients Shaped Their Own Narrative. And, and Bruna got the chance to briefly introduce herself quick. We will um, dive a little bit more into introductions in a second. Uh, but before we do that, we just wanted to quickly jump through um, what we hope to cover today um, with, uh, with our time together. So we're really hope we're going to go over some goals. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about who we are, um, myself, Bruna, um, us as United We Dream. Uh, we're going to really dive into the meat of our discussion today. It's going to be a lot about how DACA ended up at the Supreme Court and how we met the moment. Um, and then we're going to close it off with some questions and, and, and um, some dialogue between us here today. So some of the things that we're hoping to take away from today um, is giving you all the opportunity to share uh, from a case study about how we were able to leverage personal storytelling to avoid harmful media narratives. Uh, we're going to learn how we use this case study to maximize uh, some of the own content that we were able to produce um, to increase our earned media and some of our, our earned media strategy. Uh, we're going to dive a lot into some of the strategies that it took to put together a campaign that really focused on identity and belonging 
And then lastly, one of the things that we really want to talk about and, and hope that you all walk away from this session with is uh, learning why it's so important to ensure that we're centering the voices and the contributions of those who are most directly impacted uh, in the work that we all do as we're all seeking to do uh, comms for good. So to jump us in, um, we want to share a little bit about who we are. Uh, we're super excited to be here. And so I'm going to kick it off to uh, Bruna, who's going to uh, share a little bit about herself. Thanks, Jose. Like I said, everyone, my name is Bruna Buhid Salad. I am undocumented and unafraid, um, although that hasn't always been true. In 2016, I was a DACA recipient um, who was very much scared because of the results of the November elections. And I was looking for community and I found United We Dream um, on Twitter, actually. We were doing a community call to explain to our members what was going on with um, you know, Trump becoming president, what would happen to DACA and other deportation protections. Um, I can proudly say that you know, after nearly four years, I've really grown into um, you know, what my identity is and my status. And I can be in front of you today and be talking about our stories and the stories of our members. Um, and I'm really, really proud of that. I think that's the work of organizing. Um, and I always had a background in communications. Uh, I really like to talk, so I studied communications in college, and I now serve as the communications director here at United We Dream. Just a quick fun fact about myself. I did sing and dance at the Macy's Day Parade when I was in seventh grade. Um, so it's always one of those special memories and a really a fun connection that I have with New York City. I'll pass it back to Jose. Thanks, Bruna. Um, hi, everyone. So like I shared at the top of the call, my name is Jose. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. I have the, the honor of serving as the National Communications Manager at United We Dream. Like Bruna, I'm also a DACA recipient. Um, I came to the US uh, when I was three months old, and I grew up undocumented in Minneapolis. Uh, I like to consider myself a progressive communicator and really find my passion um, with helping people tell their stories, telling my own story, um, was one of the ways that I was able to really grow into myself um, and really able to, um, to use my story to feel empowered. Um, I have a degree in public, uh, public relations from the University of Minnesota and, and a background in journalism. Um, and so that really co collides with the passions that I have for storytelling. Uh, and at United We Dream, I have the opportunity to really help tell the story of our members um, by training folks um, but, and also telling the story of, of our members and United We Dream uh, with the media. Um, and I have a lot of experience of doing that through by telling my own story of uh, queer undocumented um, person and, and what that means. Uh, and my fun fact uh, is that I co-founded my high school's um, online student newspaper back in the day. So who is United We Dream? Um, and what, what are some of the things that, that we've been able to accomplish? So United We Dream was founded in 2008. Uh, we are the largest immigrant youth-led network in the country. Uh, we have been around over 10 years now, and in that time, we have been able to grow our membership to over 800,000 members with over 100 local groups. Uh, we have a monthly online reach of nearly 5 million. We've had the opportunity to train over 60,000 young people in organizing and storytelling. Um, the core of what United We Dream does is taking directly impacted at people, uh, taking directly impacted individuals uh, and putting them at the forefront of everything that we do. Uh, and it really is about um, undocumented folks being able to tell their own stories, being able to enact change uh, in their communities. 
some of the work that we have been able to do and continue to do is, you know, we've been able to stop uh, hundreds of deportations. We have shut down detention camps uh, in places like Oklahoma. Uh, we've won policies at the state and local level um, to uh, make uh, lives better for immigrants. Um, we have done the work and continue to do the work to expose uh, deportation um, forces like ICE and CBP, um, you know, ICE who has conducted raids um, for years and continues to, uh, to do that, and, and CBP, both agencies that um, folks may have heard of, you know, having been sent recently to places like Portland um, to, to wreak havoc on those communities as folks were um, you know, taking to the streets to protest uh, police brutality. Um, you know, we have raised the national profile around the call to abolish ICE, which um, in the short time that we have been um, around, uh, 10 years, I guess, isn't that, that short, but in the time that we've been around, really raising the, the urgency for that call to abolish ICE to a national profile to the point where we have had members of Congress, um, you know, senators joining those calls. And at the federal level, we've been able to win, and that'll be the crux of some of the conversation that we have um, today. Uh, it was immigrant young people of United We Dream and others uh, who were organizing um, and um, pressuring pres then President Obama to do more to protect young people. Uh, folks were getting deported at, at high rates, um, and there was uh, a stalemate in Congress to provide any sort of uh, legislative solution for undocumented folks. And it was immigrant young people who were bravely coming out and sharing their stories uh, and chanting that they were undocumented and unafraid that led to the victory that became DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, both of which, uh, both Boone and I are, are beneficiaries of that program, which um, allows us a reprieve from the threat of deportation um, and a work permit renewable um, every two years. Um, and, you know, at United We Dream, we like to say that we take people from a place of isolation and we bring them into community to be able to take collective action um, and to really grow their power. And, and we really do that by giving immigrant young people all of the tools that they need to be able to share their story, to be able to, to advocate for themselves and their communities, uh, and to really turn that into long-lasting um, action. Thank you, Jose. So I'm going to go into a little bit of a timeline to really be able to set the stage for the tactic that we're going to share with all of you. I'd love to hear um, on the chat box, if you can, tell us like what you've heard about DACA, what you know about the program. You know, we know that the DACA program has been in the news quite a bit, obviously, these last four years. Um, but like Jose shared, uh, the DACA program was in, uh, put in place by the Obama administration in 2012 after many years of campaigning. Um, from groups like United We Dream and other immigrant justice organizations campaigning for a stop to deportations. And those successful campaigns led to the DACA program. Um, and then fast forward uh, a few years, we knew that, the, that Trump as a candidate um, campaigned on removing DACA. I think you know, the fact that it took him until September of his first year to do it shows the power of immigrant young people and how much um, the hearts and minds of the American people are with us because it, you know, he was going back and forth on it a lot, but at the end of the day, he did decide to terminate the program and put the lives of 800,000 young people and our families at risk of deportation, right? Like Jose and I are not here in the country by ourselves. We're here with our families and many of us live in mixed status families, meaning we have uh, US citizen siblings or partners, um, but also we have undocumented parents. And I think it's really important not to only talk about DACA, but to talk about the impact that this decision had on the community. 
Um, seeing great things on um, the chat. So there's another DACA recipient, I think Jimena, listening in on this. It's very cool, great to meet you. Glad you're here with us. Um, and then, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened once Trump rescinded the DACA program. We knew that this was coming, like I said. We were preparing for this moment because Trump had campaigned on this. As soon as the Trump administration rescinded the program, we went into what we called the Clean Dream Act campaign. Clean meaning a bill that did not have any harmful attachments that would hurt our parents or any other immigrants in our communities or the immigrants that were to come. We were not willing to accept more money for ICE and CBP on our backs. We were not willing to accept harmful things that would hurt our families on the backs of immigrant young people. Uh, and so really leading into that whole fall was when we launched the campaign. We had actions in Washington DC almost every week, um, lots of media, lots of press conferences, uh, lots of huge buildup heading into um, the government funding, which is where we were trying to pu push the bill. At the same time, and Jose, we can go into the next slide. At the same time, you know, we had a legislative campaign, but at the same time, we were also uh, putting together a legal strategy, meaning multiple states um, and different organizations sued the uh, Trump administration um, for their, the decision to end DACA. And so as we were um, at the peak of really the DREAM Act campaign on January, we heard from one of those cases uh, that the, the one of the cases sided with us and said, no, Trump's um, end of the program was wrong and the program will continue. So the program continued though, but in a different way, which is important. It only continued for current DACA recipients, like people like Jose and I who had the program before. We were allowed to renew, but no new immigrant young person who aged into the program would be able to get it, which left hundreds of thousands of immigrant young people who were 14 and 15 without any deportation protections. I think that's really important to bring out. You know, as these lawsuits are going on, um, you know, Congress failed to pass the DREAM Act. Um, you know, the Democrats were not in power at the time, the Republicans controlled it, and we were, it, you know, the Democrats were not able to push it through and Republicans were refusing to do it as well. And of course, you know, we could spend all day talking about how Trump got involved and how he um, hurt us in the process. Um, and then we knew we were gonna head into the Supreme Court because Donald Trump and his administration wanted to ex like expedite the process, right? They wanted to take the, uh, the lawsuit into the Supreme Court because they had a conservative leaning court and they thought that they could win. Um, I'll share here that on January 23rd, 2019, Immigration and Customs, the director at ICE said in a press conference that he would deport DACA recipients. This is really key for our work because for a long time you'll hear the Trump administration themselves or other Republicans say, well, we're not trying to deport them. We're just trying to do the right thing, right? It's sort of like the excuse they give us. But the fact of the matter is that ICE was preparing to deport DACA recipients. And so that was key for our work leading into um, the Supreme Court hearing. And, and June of 2019 is when we heard that the Supreme Court had accepted the case and really when um, you know, our fight for the Supreme Court started. I think, you know, I'll end this session by saying for us, you know, there was multiple strategies here, a litigation strategy, a legislative strategy, but at the end of the day, this is really a culture change strategy. It, for us, it was not enough to win at the Supreme Court or to win legislation. We needed to win it our way because we know that in order for us to live and thrive and be protected from deportation, we need to change the culture of this country and how they think about immigrants and how we treat immigrants. And so really the tactic that we're going to explain to you is at the, that's at the crux of that, is really a culture change strategy. 
I'll pass it on to you, Jose. Thanks, Bruna. So I get to talk a little bit about how we met the moment that Bruna just uh, laid out for us that we were in. As we prepared for DACA to go to the Supreme Court, it was really important for us as United We Dream to lay out some of our values um, to really ground ourselves in like what was important. And like Bruna mentioned, this was not about just one Supreme Court case. This was really about making sure that everything that we've done up until this point and continue to do lay the groundwork for our for our overall vision, which really is to create a world where everyone, regardless of immigration status, is able to live free and thrive. And so it was really important for us to ground ourselves in some of these things and some of these goals to help decide the tactics that we were going to take um, as we set out into the Supreme Court fight. Uh, and some of those are, you know, we, it was really important for us to be able to tell our stories, our own stories, our way. Um, you know, United We Dream has done that since its inception. Um, and so it was really important to ensure that we were, we were guided by that principle. It was also important for us to expand the conversation beyond just DACA recipients. And, um, and what that really meant for us was, uh, like Bruna mentioned, uh, her and I have really been privileged to be able to continue to renew our DACA status even after the Trump administration tried to end it given court injunctions. But there was still a lot of young people who um, aged into the program that hadn't been able to apply. Uh, and then the other thing here is that um, DACA really only protects about 800,000 young people. Uh, and when we think about the, the number of undocumented people living in the US, we're at over 11 million. And so there's a really big discrepancy. So it's important for us to ensure that while DACA is in the news, we're using that as, as a really, as a jumping off point um, to broaden the horizon as much as possible to protect as many people as possible. It was important for us also to highlight the real threat of deportation. Uh, you know, oftentimes we think about when, we, when we're reading about DACA, it's possible to really focus on, you know, DACA provides a work permit for two years, but the reality that, that, that Bruna helped mention earlier was that uh, happening simultaneously was this plan um, by ICE, by the Trump administration, um, to carry out the removal of DACA recipients should uh, DACA be ended. It was also important for us to have to ensure that the Supreme Court owned the risk of their decision. Um, and what that meant is that if they sided with the Trump administration, what would that mean? And that would mean that DACA recipients and their families would be at risk of being separated um, of, of sort of another wave of, of family separation. Um, it was also important for us, considering that we were going into um, oral arguments for the Supreme Court case that would come with a decision that would come in 2020 during an election year, it was important for us to ensure that this decision was as politically costly for Trump and Republicans, regardless of the outcome at the Supreme Court. Um, and so we'll, we'll be able to jive a lot into that here. And then lastly, it was really important for us to, to ensure our final goal really was uh, protecting immigrant young people um, at the Supreme Court. Um, and so with that, I'll jump into some of the challenges that we face. I think as we all think about the way that we do our work as communicators, it's really important for us to understand the landscape um, and recognizing that there might be some things that we have to kind of work through or, or some things that we um, have to overcome. And one thing that I'll share is that I think um, sometimes for folks, it's um, people don't actually really know what it means to be undocumented unless they've lived that experience. 
Um, and so for us, it was important that we are challenging and pushing back against potentially harmful media narratives since folks who don't live this experience, that's where they might be getting what it means to be undocumented. And so it's important for us to ensure that as we're doing our work, uh, we're really pushing back against some of these potential media narratives. You'll see a couple here, um, but as we're thinking about like the perfect dreamer narrative and, and how that's potentially harmful, um, what does that look like? That really plays out into this idea that there is like a perfect DACA recipient or, or immigrant young person. And, and that comes sometimes um, in the sense, in the way that the media might gravitate towards certain stories, stories that are more so about like someone's um, education level, were they the valedictorian? A lot of times these tend to be stories about immigrants or DACA recipients from certain countries over others. Um, you know, generally these are like Latinx DACA recipients. Generally, they are from countries like Mexico. They tend to be straight and cisgender. And so that really leaves out a lot of other folks. Um, separately from here, there's also uh, like a harmful media narrative that gets played by some of our opponents uh, that criminalize our communities. You know, one of the common lines that we constantly fight against in the media is this idea that DACA recipients were brought into this country, quote unquote, through no fault of their own. Um, and that's that's both a harmful media media narrative and it's also something that's perpetuated even by some allies. Uh, you know, I think there are even politicians who, who reinforce that line and that's harmful because it, it really you know, it, it points to the criminalization of our parents in a way that, you know, there was a choice that was made. And one thing that I want to really lay out with that narrative is that it really puts the blame, like puts blame on people um, for making choices about their lives versus making, um, putting the blame on systems. Uh, the, there another uh, harmful narrative here sometimes is the, the myth of like the DACA kids. Um, you know, I'll share that Bruna and I are, um, you know, I'm, I turned 30 this year and Bruna turned 29 this summer. Um, and so we definitely are not, you know, like young children. And, and sometimes there is this uh, potential harmful narrative around like what it, who are DACA recipients. I um, mean, the reality is that a lot of DACA recipients are parents. They, they tend to be older. They've lived in the U.S. for decades. Um, they don't tend to be, you know, toddlers. And so um, it's really important for us to be able to take ownership and expand to ensure that we're including everybody. And then lastly, this really wraps us into, um, it boils down to a binary where some immigrants are seen as good and deserving of, as protection, of protection from deportation, of, um, you know, pathways to citizenship, uh, and it puts other immigrants into this other category of being undeserving. And I want to be really clear about one thing, and it's that, you know, no one deserves to have to go or live through the trauma of deportation or family separation. And some of these harmful media narratives really paint this idea of a good and bad immigrant, um, when in reality, we're, we're really needing to make sure that we're centering people's humanity um, and really the, the brokenness of a system over anything else. Thank you, Jose. And wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other challenges we faced. Um, and that's time and oversaturation of our stories. I'll start with the timing. Um, so from when we heard the Supreme Court would take the case, that was in June of 2019. The hearing itself was not until November. I mean, short amount of time, sure, a few months, but a, a short amount of time to be able to create um, this narrative change that we wanted. And so when we share with you the tactic that we led with, um, we only had six weeks um, to produce everything and to get everything out. Um, it's really, really short amount of time. 
The other part that I'll share is that once the hearing happened, it was just one day in November, we did not get a decision until June of the next year. That's nearly seven months in between the hearing and the decision. And we all know we're communicators, it's extremely hard to keep the attention of the media on our subjects and on our people. Um, I'll also share, I think one of the other issues that we had is like I said, you know, we've been in the news a lot as DACA recipients and as immigrants since the Trump administration has began attacking us. And it means that a lot of the reporters have already told the stories of DACA recipients. So we really had to be creative and nimble and be able to um, give the media something different and something that they hadn't heard before, something that they didn't want to really talk about. And we had to really make the case that those are the stories that they needed to tell. So again, it just really pushed us to be more creative and think outside the box. And I think the last thing I'll share is that we were constantly attacked by the Trump administration. You know, in our work, you always want to play offense. But the truth is that under the Trump administration, we are constantly playing defense. And so even though we were focused on the DACA program and saving it at the Supreme Court, we were dealing with all of these other issues and all of these other attacks on our communities. And the Trump administration wins by not allowing us to focus, right? When we're inundated with so many attacks, it's really hard to do our work and to do it well. So we had to be really, you know, it was just, I mean, to honestly, just a lot of, a, a lot of, a, sorry, I want to say a lot of, I almost curse, but I don't want to curse, a lot of work, a lot of work leading into the hearing and after the hearing. Um, but it meant that we had to prioritize things, but it also meant that at, at, sometimes we were doing a lot at once. Because for us, it's not only about protecting DACA, it's really about protecting all immigrants from deportation. And I thank you, Bruna. So as Bruna mentioned, um, we had a limited time to execute some of the, like the main tactics that we leveraged um, for leading up to the oral arguments which, which took place um, in November of 2019. And so one of those tactics was a storytelling amicus brief um, where we submitted 20 the story of 27 DACA recipients as part of an amicus brief a friend of the court brief that was submitted to the supreme court um, about the impact the the like real human stories the real human impact of what was at stake um, what what the justices were going to hear um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were infusing the stories of real people and so as part of that brief, which we submitted 27 stories, we also submitted the first of its kind video amicus brief, where we were able to take nine of the stories from those 27 written briefs um, and submit nine videos to the Supreme Court. Um, and a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court started allowing uh, electronic records. And I know some of our partners, I think at like Planned Parenthood had, had submitted websites um, and different things. Like there had been new tactics that had been taken on. Um, but we submitted one of the first of its kind um, video amicus briefs. Uh, and so the justices were able to see um, and hear and um, the stories of, of, of DOC recipients. And so I'm actually going to take us through one of the nine uh, videos that were submitted so that you all can see what that looked like. Loving yourself starts by being loved. I came to love myself by seeing that I'm not the only one. 
It comes from seeing your communities in pictures, a loving husband, an ecology of teachers who said, you might be the first in many spaces, but why not? An understanding that if there's not a way, then we have to build a way. <laughs> I came here from Colombia at the age of 14. Where I come from, day after day, I saw members of my family disappear. What I couldn't contextualize was that we were victims of an over 50-year civil war. As a result of a lot of violence, my parents made the radical decision to uproot their lives and start over. My first semester at Georgetown University, my entire family was deported. My mother, my father, my sister were taken away from me. I was houseless. I went hungry, but I didn't despair. And I learned to do one of the hardest things people have to learn to do, which is ask for help. If it wasn't for chosen families, I would not be here. My trans sisters who check on me, who ask me, how are you? Don't forget we're here for you. You can call us. You can cry on our shoulder. With the termination of DACA, we are potentially deporting queer and trans immigrants to a death sentence. There's no roadmaps to be a trans woman. But once I became a DACA recipient, I was able to live my most unapologetic, authentic life. That moment took me from living half alive to living fully alive. This is where Catalina was born. And despite the fact that I have not been able to hug my mom in over 10 years, I will continue fighting for the recognition of our humanity. I'm Catalina Velasquez. I'm 31 years old. I am resilient, confident, powerful. I'm a wife. I'm a friend. I am a strong trans woman of color. for playing it um folks we'd love to hear like what you think about the the video um if you could in the chat box put some of your thoughts some of the things that came up for you and remember when you're in the chat box and you want to share make sure you click all panelists and attendees so everyone can see 
Um, but yeah, would love to just hear like first take, take first gut reactions. Um, it's one of the videos that we're so proud of. And like Jose shared, it's just one of nine that we worked on. And so <laughs> I, yeah, I, I get you, Wilda. I always tear up when I watch those videos too. And I've watched them a bunch of times. I always really get emotional. They're very powerful. Um, and so we'd love to talk you through the process um, to how we got to the videos. Um, so Jose, maybe we can go into the next slide. The next slide shows a little bit of the other um, nine videos we worked on. Um, they're all really different. We um, invite you to go to our website and see them. They all tell the stories of like of, uh, like amazing people and we'd love for you to see them. So we'll send a, out a link or something. We'll figure it out so y'all can um, check it out afterwards. Thank you all so much. So I'm hearing beautiful, evokes great levels of emotions, compassion, compelling and real powerful, touching. Those are all the things that, you know, we wanted them to be too. So we're really glad they resonate with you too. We're going to go over a little bit about how we developed them. Um, so the first thing we wanted to talk about is that they were led by directly impacted people. Um, and so obviously at United We Dream, a lot of our team is led by DACA recipients like Jose and I, our digital team um, is also directly impacted people. And so when it came time to make these videos, we wanted to make sure that the team we hired to film and produce were also people that, you know, led with the same values as us. So we hired um, a woman of color, um, two women of color to uh, direct and produce the videos. And I think the other thing that's important here is that we didn't really, we didn't go, well, here's our vision and we pass it on to the, to the filmmaker and the producer. We had 100% involvement in crafting the video into what we needed to be. So that meant that the editing process took more time. And right, I talk, talked about six weeks that we had, but it meant that it was you know weekend work and night work and making sure that these videos were everything we wanted it to be. I'll also share that the nine folks we picked were folks that were very much involved in what parts of their stories we wanted to, they wanted us to tell. So our team actually flew to some of these cities to talk to these folks and were there as they were filming. It was, you know, obviously, post-COVID world, it's a really hard thing to do, but I think it was really important for us to allow the directly impacted people to have as much as a say and, as, and be working in the process as we were. Um, I'll also share that capturing the, like, the diverse lived experiences of all these folks. Like Jose said, a lot of the media puts us in a bucket and they only wanna tell one story about us. So it was really important for us to tell stories that have not been told before. And I think Catalina's story is exemplary of that, right? Of Catalina's story isn't out there in the media a lot. So it was on us to be able to tell that story. You know, we love also being able to showcase different cities that these um, DACA recipients live in and being able to show like how we're like in every state and how like this truly is our home. And I think we were able to accomplish that. The last thing I'll share that's really important is if you heard Catalina talked about her family's deportation. Every single story we picked for these um, videos mentioned the deportation, whether someone in their family or someone they knew. And it's because we know that every single DACA recipient that lives in this country is impacted by the deportation force of ICE and CBP. I'll share that during the hearing, um, Chief Justice Roberts said that this was not about deportation. He said he did not believe the Obama administration or the Trump administration were setting out to deport DACA recipients. However, like that quote I shared with you earlier and during the timeline, ICE had um, admitted to planning to deport DACA recipients. So this video was, these videos are really important for us 
to be able to talk about the connection that there is in our communities with the deportation force at ICE and CBP and to talk about the impact that they have and to really show that at the end of the day, this is not about a work permit. It's not whether we can work or not. It's whether we're going to be able to stay in this country or not. And that's at the crux of this issue. So we wanted to make sure every video touched on, on that. Um, and I'll pass it on to Jose to talk about some of the media pitching that happened once we released um, the videos. Yeah, so I think we, we know as communicators, it's, it's really important for us to be able to share our stories and, and, and amplify the stories that we're telling and, and the voices um, the voices that are being heard. And so connecting to the media is one of those ways that we can help to amplify and reach more people. Um, and that was really important because these videos were submitted to the Supreme Court through an amicus brief. Um, the average American isn't following when someone is submitting an amicus brief. And so it was important for us to be able to highlight these videos. And so aside from ensuring that they were pro uh, predominantly pushed out through our uh, social media, it was really important that we were reaching people in other ways. And so we wanted to create a, a bigger narrative moment uh, to continue to pitch some of these videos and these stories um, to ensure that we were still able to humanize who DACA uh, recipients were. We use these videos as a big news hook for us. Um, a month before oral arguments, we were able to get quite a bit of media coverage on these videos. And it was because we were very intentional about what we did. And so we specifically worked with publications um, to repurpose the videos in, in creative ways. So for example, we worked with Now This. Um, they were able to take the videos that we created um, pre, um, like they take a lot of the editing that we had done. We had given them the video that was cut um, like before it was posted on, on the internet and we allowed them to take uh, parts of that and cutting it into their own video. So it, it, when they, published it, they linked to our content, but they did it in a way that it made it look like it was like a, a content that they had created when really we just owned it and we worked with them to be able to, to figure out what it looked like uh, because that was best for their brand. The other way that we used this video really creatively, um, which was one of my favorite ways of using them was, we also provided the audio um, of the video with no sound to publications like NPR. And they actually used that sound to make it sound like, obviously, you know, NPR is audio, to make it sound like um, they had sent someone out into the field to interview this DACA recipient, you know, this person in this video. Uh, and then we also leveraged these stories to continue to, to broaden the, the exposure that we had to DACA recipients in the media um, by using the videos in conjunction with strategies. Uh, for example, with uh, MTV, we worked to, on an op-ed from one of the DACA recipients in the video. And so those were some of the ways that we were able to leverage those videos uh, in some really unique and creative ways to ensure that we were getting them in front of as many people as possible. And then lastly, we really made sure that um, these videos and the folks who were sharing their story um, continued to do that. And so we brought a lot of the participants, both from the videos, but also from the storytelling brief uh, to DC um, on the day of oral arguments uh, in November to be able to share their story. And I saw someone ask this question in the chat and I think it's good to address it right now. And they asked um, how we were able to um, get people willing to share their story. Um, I think I mentioned this at the beginning when I explained you know, a little bit about United We Dream, but we have a network of over 800,000 um, members. 
these folks are our members. You know, these are folks who have been in United We Dream spaces. They have been trained by United We Dream um, to share their story. They are leaders in many of our affiliates. Uh, and so these are, this is our family. And so the folks who shared their story, um, it wasn't about us, you know, scrambling to find people who were willing to share their stories. It was folks that we had already been organizing with and that had been a part of our network for a long time. Uh, here is an example of some of the earned media that we were able to get, just a small tidbit of some of it, um, that we were able to get just from these videos uh, alone. Uh, and so I'll go to Bruna now, who will um, take it from here. Jose and I can do a presentation on our Home Is Here campaign for hours. I think there's so much to cover. We only obviously focus on one tactic leading up to the hearing, um, obviously the video amicus brief, but we did wanna share a little bit of what happened when COVID hit. Like I said, there were seven months between the hearing and the decision. Um, and so post the amicus briefs and all of that, a COVID hit. And I think obviously for all of us, it was unexpected for all of us, it impacted our communities in um, extremely difficult ways. A lot of our DACA recipients became the breadwinners of their families because their families lost their jobs. And there are, 200,000 DACA recipients who are frontline workers during the COVID pandemic. And so we were hearing our, from our members, like, you know, what's gonna happen now with DACA? Like, how can we lose DACA in the middle of this pandemic? So in our uh, litigation strategy, we did what we call the Hail Mary, which was submitting a letter to the Supreme Court to tell them what has happened since the hearing, you know, to give them new information. And so when we did that with the letter, what we also did is reuse the videos that we had already created to tell these stories. So one of the videos is of a, um, this young woman who's studying to become a doctor. Um, and she talked about what would be the impact of her losing or not being able to be a doctor and to take care of her patients during COVID. Um, and we tell, told stories of other doctor recipients who were grocery store workers or janitors and all the people that are kept our have been keeping our country running over these last few months. And so we were able to get more coverage out of the videos and reuse them leading up to the decision. Um, like I said, we can go into a lot more details of everything else we did. I just wanted to do a touch point because I think for all of us, COVID-19 had a huge impact on our work. Um, and we were really at the crux of our campaign while, when COVID hit. Um, so I wanted to, I think all of you obviously know that we did win at the Supreme Court. And I wanted to just take a minute to say how, how happy we are about that. I mean, you know, I don't think we expected to win. We were very much prepared to lose because a lot of the litigators said it didn't look good. You know, it didn't look good that Chief Justice Roberts didn't think this was about deportations, that he thought it was just about work permits, that he didn't see the threat like we did. Um, and so we were very much prepared for scenario A, which was losing. Uh, obviously, as any good communicator and organizers, we had plans for scenario B. Um, and so, you know, I want to celebrate that. And I think all of the work we did leading up to it helped us win and, you know, were, was the reason why we won. But I also want to say that we didn't fully win, meaning though, although the Supreme Court sided with us, sided with immigrant young people and told us uh, the Trump administration to reopen DACA as it was before 2017, when they first went after it, the Trump administration did not do that. About a month after we went at the Supreme Court, they put out a new memo that actually dismantles the DACA program. So Jose and I, now when we renew, instead of two-year protections, we'll only get one year. So they slashed it in half. And they didn't refuse to open applications for new DACA recipients. So no young person, like I mentioned, is able to apply now and get protected if they weren't before. 
that's over 300,000 immigrant young people who are right now at risk of deportation. We know that the Trump administration did that because they were preparing if they win another four years, that they can then dismantle the program fully next year. And so I'll share a little, just a tidbit. The Home is Here campaign, we knew that would lead into our electoral work at United We Dream Action, which is our C4. So it was very much about leading into this campaign until the Supreme Court decision. And then once we got a decision to be able to go into our electoral campaign to ensure that we beat Trump on, in November and ensure that he does not have four more years. Because we know that while Trump is at the White House, DACA is not safe and immigrant young people and our families are not safe from deportation. Thanks, Bruna. And um, with that, we wanted to just share some of our key takeaways and Bruna will get us started. Yeah, I feel like I kind of already did one, which was very much like I said, this was a campaign that led into other campaigns, right? It wasn't just a campaign that we started and then closed and then put a little bow around it and it was done. It was very much a campaign that went into another campaign. So I think one of the key takeaways as you're thinking through this is like, once your campaign ends, what comes next? And how can you integrate the current campaign you're leading into the next one? And then the other two uh, things that I'll take us through, one is uh, working to repurpose content to increase its impact. So the videos we, uh, and the storytelling brief obviously were submitted to the Supreme Court, but we leveraged those to uh, blast them out to the public by um, having a really robust earned media strategy with this own content um, to expand the reach, to expand the number of people who were hearing these stories um, of DACA recipients. It was also really important for us to be nimble and innovative with the tactics that we were using. Uh, you know, a, a video brief like this had never been done uh, in front of the Supreme Court. And one thing that I really love about these videos is that you get to see and you get to hear the lives of these young people, of these folks who have DACA. Um, we get to sort of be like uh, a fly on the wall for a day in their life as they share their story with us, as they share the impact of what losing DACA could mean for them, um, as they share the impact of deportation. Um, and so it was really important for us as we were thinking about how we were gonna tell these stories to try to find new ways to do that and to be innovative. And, and this uh, you know, video amicus brief was, was one way to do that. And the last takeaway I'll share is that at United We Dream, we believe that those closest to the pain are those closest to the breakthroughs. And that's why with everything we do, we make sure that it is led by directly impacted people. Like I shared, our communications team is led by Jose and I, both who are documented, our digital team, the folk, like I said, the folks that we hired to film the video and to produce the videos were women of color who had immigrant experiences. And so we know how important it is to be part of it. And Jose and I also led on the messaging. Not only did we lead on these tactics, but we drafted the messaging because for us, at the end of the day, no matter if we lost or won at the Supreme Court, we needed to, to do it our way because we're the ones that continue to live with it afterwards. Like, right, like we are living these lives here in the United States and being in threat of deportation. So we knew that this was about changing the hearts and minds of the American people, but we have to think about that in the long term. Are we changing their minds so that in the future there is better than DACA, right? For us, DACA is the floor, it's not the ceiling. There is a lot more that we're, we need to get done in order for all immigrants to be protected. So that's why it was really critical to ensure that it was undocumented young people leading on the strategy, whether it was the legal strategy, the litigation strategy, or I'm sorry, the legal or um, legislative strategy, and these like culture change, narrative change campaigns. It was really critical to ensure that everyone that was in the room was directly impacted. The people that were direct, 
that people leading were directly impacted. Um, I'll stop there and Jose, I'm gonna, there's a lot of good questions and we only have 10 minutes. So I wanna get to um, a couple of them that y'all have shared in the Q&A box. Um, I'll start with the first one um, from Niha. How does United We Dream differentiate between advocacy and communications? It seems like the two are closely intertwined. Absolutely, they are. Um, at United We Dream specifically, we do have an advocacy team, a department, and then we have the communications department, but we work um, in conjunction with the team at all times, every press release, every messaging document, every letter that goes to Congress, it is a, a work that you know our teams do together. You know, I'll share that though. Advocacy is a lot, very much focused on um, legislation, and you know whether it's a Congress or state and local. And I think for us at Communications, our overall goal is always to think about like, are we changing the narrative of, immig of immigrants in this country? Are we changing the culture around how immigrants are treated? And so, yes, we very much work very closely with the advocacy team. But for example, if there's not a legislative campaign, it doesn't mean you know we're not doing all of these other things um, to change the culture here in the United States. Jose, anything to add for that one? No, that was great. What risk does the new Supreme Court appointee pose for the future of DACA? Um, I think that's a really important question. So, I, like you know, we had the um, we had the Supreme Court decision in June of this year. I think what's one of the really important things is to make sure that DACA recipients, you know, um, when RBG passed away this Friday, there was a lot of DACA recipients online, like not sure what that meant for their current DACA status and being very worried and rightfully so. But I think it's important to lead with this. Currently, our, if you have DACA, that is safe for now. You know, the, the Supreme Court um, vacancy does not impact it at this moment. However, we know that a more of a uh, conservative leaning at the Supreme Court means that if Trump wins again, then we will potentially be in another fight at the Supreme Court. Not only if it's DACA, but if it's any type of protections for immigrants. We know that Republicans will use the conservative-leaning court to hurt us and to keep protections away from us. I think that's really key is why we leaned into an electoral strategy post this decision. Is because at the end of the day, we know that the first step into ensuring that we get full protections starts with getting Trump out of the White House. We know it's not it's not, it's not it, right? It doesn't just take getting him out. There's a lot more work, but that's the first step. And so that we can organize and push a future administration um, to do uh, DACA and to expand DACA, but also to do a lot of the other things. Like I said, DACA is the floor, not the ceiling. Jose, I'll have you answer this one because I think it's really important. How do you adjust your communication strategy to rapid or unexpected changes in public conversation about DACA. That includes the messengers, the stories, current events. Yeah, so I think what Bruna mentioned at the beginning when we talked about the timeline was that we had a lot of time. So from the time that uh, the Trump administration first rescinded the program in 2017 to the time that we heard oral arguments in November, there was a lot of news that was coming out about DACA. Um, there was multiple court cases that were, um, I feel like there's a lot of, there's also like a lot of DACA anniversaries. It's like the anniversary when DACA was announced, the anniversary of when DACA was implemented, the anniversary of like when Trump was into DACA. And so there's always, I feel like in our work, at least there always has been um, some sort of anniversary on DACA. And I think for us, it's about centering um, our members. Uh, we, I think have at United We Dream, we do an amazing job of ensuring that our folks um, are, um, 
invested in, like that we train our folks to be able to share their stories, that we train our folks to be able to tell the stories of the work that they're doing um, in their localities. And so I think that those are some of the big ways that we're able to sort of, I think, ride the, the, the many different waves that come, uh, especially as we think about how DACA has been in the news, one, for so long, but then two, I think, in so many different ways. Um, and in so many different stories. And then I think the last thing that I'll share is, uh, as Bruna was mentioning at the end of the presentation around the response to COVID-19, you know, it was really important for us um, as we were in the midst of sort of the, one of the key stories that was being told around COVID-19 was the piece around, you know, essential workers. And, you know, there's over almost 30,000 DACA recipients work in the healthcare industry which is like a really important story to tell as we're thinking about the folks who are working on the front lines. But like Bruna mentioned, there's 200,000 DACA recipients who work in frontline jobs. They just don't happen to be in healthcare. And so it was about being able to, one, lean into um, the narrative that the, that the media wanted to tell around, you know, frontline workers that had DACA uh, and being able to expand what that looked like. And so working with our folks who worked in other frontline jobs that were working in like as grocery store workers who were also, you know, risking their lives and, and helping to make sure that we had what we needed to be able to, again, just expand what that conversation really looked like. Jose, I'll give this to you because I know you were part of this. How did you? How do you recommend engaging with now this? I think a lot of folks really loved the work we did with now this. I'm gonna uh, say it's hard because we've been trying for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so I think for us it was really important to um, meet folks where they were at, and so I, like I shared in the examples, being really nimble with the way that we were sharing the content. Like yes, we created this content and we had these videos, um, but we really wanted to be very intentional about the fact that when we were pitching these stories, um, it wasn't like, here's this video that we did, like, we would love if you wrote about the video, <laughs> because that is not enticing. For anyone that's worked as a journalist or that works in media, like, that's not an enticing story. And so being able to provide, like, now this is, is about videos, like, they love to post their viral videos, that is their bread and butter. Um, and so how could we provide them that with the content that we have and work really closely together? And so I think that was I think really, really important is, is you have to have a, such a, a specific understanding of who you're working with and how you can um, angle your pitch very, very precisely for that person. And then I think the other thing, honestly, I loved talking to reporters and the media about these videos. Um, because they're so powerful and you really get to see, we didn't share this video, but one of, the, one of my favorite videos, um, we get to follow uh, a young woman as she commutes downtown, like she's getting on the subway, she's going to work. And it feels like such a mundane thing, but like for me to be able to describe that on the phone with a reporter and like explain to them, like we're sending this to the Supreme Court so that the voices of DACA recipients are are alive in the court. Like you can follow someone along on, on the most mundane thing, which is their morning commute, which I think we might all take for granted um, now that we're sort of not really commuting. Um, but being able to, I think, um, live in the power that our work has, like we spend so much time to create our own content. Obviously for us at United We Dream, but I'm sure for, for other folks that are creating content in-house, we spend so much time and I think being able to to speak about it poetically is, is, and, and passionately um, and with precision to who you're speaking about it to, I think will really help uh, amplify your earned media for some of these things.
Thank you, Jose. So I have two questions that are kind of similar. So I'm going to bunch them together. One's from Maria and then one is from Anna. So it asks about why didn't we include the advocacy ask in the videos? Um, and then also how would like, how, when we were developing them, did we think they would function like outside of the amicus briefs? So I'll take that Jose and then um, you've, you know, give me more too if there is. So um, for this specific tactic, yes, we knew that they were going to be part of like the first ever video amicus brief. Um, and so I think for us, when we were thinking about like, you know, what can we submit to make it really clear what the impact is and what the threat is here? Um, it was very much about, yes, the Supreme Court, the justices will maybe watch it um, or their clerks will watch it. So yes, it was for that reason. The advocacy ask was not included because we were not in a campaign at that time for legislation in Congress. So it was really focused on like, can we change the minds of these judges that are gonna make this, these justices that are gonna make the decision. At the same time, our other audience was very much the American people. And I think that's why we went with the idea of making them into a video is because we didn't want it to just be like a paper or like an online thing where no one else would get to see it. We wanted the American people to see it. And that takes us back to, to what I shared. Even if we lost, we wanted to lose in a way that the American people thought it was awful that we lost. We want, if we lost, we wanted them to be like, that was a travesty. Like we now need to go and make sure that Trump doesn't win in November, right? Like we need, we knew we, was, we were gonna have an electoral ask if we lost and if we won. And so I think it was important that the videos had multiple purposes and multiple audiences. Um, and like I said, we didn't tie it to any legislative or any other ask because we weren't in a campaign. We, Congress was not in a place where they were gonna be able to pass, or they were gonna pass the DREAM Act. Another thing I will share and how we use the video, someone asked this too, is like, did we get folks to like sign up or do anything with the videos? Absolutely, like those videos are organizing tools, right? Someone watches that video and they feel really inspired. They might sign a petition or they might sign up to get our text. We did a lot of community calls during the Home Is Here campaign. So we needed to continuously go to folks and be like, sign up for the Home Is Here campaign, like be a part of this. And therefore we could keep updating them. Like I shared, it was seven months between the hearing and the decision. So we needed to keep folks engaged. And I think the videos were a great way to get more folks to join our organization, you know, whether they were allies or directly impacted people themselves. Um, we definitely use the video as a tactic to like to organize our folks. Um, and so it's like, like, that's the great thing about them is that we could be really nimble with them and use them for various different purposes. Jose, anything to add? I think I'll only add one thing, which was that this was not the first time that United We Dream was at the Supreme Court. Um, we had submitted an amicus brief, a storytelling brief before um, in 2014 around a Supreme Court case that uh, went to a program very similar to DACA known as DAPA, um, which would have protected the par undocumented parents of US citizen children um, and provided them similar protections to DACA. And so um, this was not the first time that we had submitted an amicus brief that told the stories of directly impacted people. Um, and so I think it was really just about taking something that we had really done before and um, taking it to the next level with uh, the addition of the videos, which were directly submitted to the court. And like Bruna explained, were um, you know, leveraged uh, to spread them widely to, uh, I think, pull, uh, pull people in who were not, who, who were not following this issue or, or maybe were not aware of what was going on. And we're at time, but I want to take one last question. It's the last question and then we'll close. Any national orgs you recommend with guidance trainings on how to help people tell their stories? I'm gonna say us. If you are wanting to know how to like do trainings with your folks on storytelling or like any media training, 
Jose and I are pros at doing that. It's our favorite, favorite thing. Um, so if you want to reach out and we're happy to talk to you about like training tactics we use, we can talk you through the training we do with our folks. It's the most powerful part of our work. It's the transformation. It's from taking someone from feeling scared um, and without hope into getting them to the other side of it, which is like organizing on the streets, doing interviews, doing rallies, doing all of the amazing things that we're seeing young people do and young people of color do. So like I said, reach out to us. We're really, really good at it. And we'll definitely, we're super um, interested in helping out any organization that wants to do similar things. Um, and we're going to close off. I just want to say a big thank you um, to all of you who tuned in. It was so fun to do this and we could go on for hours. There's so much more to share about our Home is Here campaign. Um, I want to say thank you to Kareem for helping us on the back end and making sure this ran really smoothly. Thank you to Jose for all your work and I'll let Jose close us off. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you, Bruna. Thank you all so much for joining and allowing us to share this space with you all. Um, and hopefully we get the opportunity to connect um, as ComNet continues. So have a good rest of your day.